Season three of We Are All Americans was recorded in the summer of 2020 in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic and the reinvigorated Black Lives Matter movement after the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Okay, so how do I pronounce your name, Vaigon or Vaigon? Merjan Vaigon. Vaigon? Yeah. With a guttural? Yeah, it's the Yeah, yeah. And I was saying before you started recording, I'm not 100% sure that I'm pronouncing it right, so I'm not going to, you know. Right. But I actually, like, a lot of people go like, oh, my name should be pronounced this way or that way. I like that every single person I've ever met pronounces my name differently, because that way, even if I have my back to them and walking it down the streets and somebody screams out my name, I'll know exactly who they are before I even turn around. Based on so how they say it? That's funny. Yeah, because I'm always really conscious of asking people because everybody, it didn't happen when I lived on the East Coast, but once I moved to Los Angeles, everybody want, tries so hard to pronounce it the ethnic way. So they yeah, yeah. think it's Shaki or <laughs> they think it's Spanish and they say Hakis. And I'm like, I don't know, in Buffalo, New York, my family said Jackwis. Welcome to We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jacquis, and I'm here with my friend Marjan Vaigan. We're talking on Zoom, and I'm in the Highland Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, and Marjan is in West LA. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I know that you immigrated to the U.S. as a child. Am I right? So tell yes. me a little bit about that story and how, how you, you and your family arrived here and where from and what, what brought you here. Okay. Well, now I'm Marjan Vailon. I live next to my old elementary school and high school in West L.A. I was born Marjan Khoshfakhti Vailon in Tehran, Iran, right smack dab in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war, which was an eight-year war. And I love the optimism of my family because four years into the world, the, the war they were living through, they were like, you know what would be nice? A whole nother person. So I was born in the middle of the war. We waited out the war. And then once the war ended, you know how now we're seeing norms change? Iran was changing the same way. Mm -hmm. And my parents were like, oh my God, we taught her to be mouthy and ask questions and be belligerent. And the country's moving in a different direction. She's going to get herself and all of us killed if we stay here. <laughs> so then my dad went to a trip on Tur to Turkey to like figure out if we could move to Turkey. And he came back saying, it's all going the same way in Turkey, too. There might be like a decade behind what's happening, but they're going down the same route. Then he started thinking about Germany. Then he heard that uh, Germans weren't really cool with Turkish people, people with dark hair. There would be some like underground racism involved. And he was like, OK, well, that's not going to work either. Mm -hmm. Then he came to L.A. to check out L.A. And he literally called my mom and went, I found a city full of Marjans. Like everyone's an artist, everyone's belligerent. Like it's a city full of herds. Like this is where we're moving to. How old were you at the time? I was six or seven. I was I love six. that your personality is that set <laughs> at six or seven. Oh my God, I was belligerent at two. <laughs> I was this like from the jump. The way <laughs> you described the beginning, I thought, Oh, she must have been a teenager by then. <laughs> no, I was like a full-on like toddler when they decided I was a handful. They, my nickname was Devilish Disaster, Shaytumbalo. So then my dad moved to LA and my, it was supposed to take six months for us to get our green cards and everything. And I remember every night I would ask my mom when my dad was like going to come back or when we were going to see him. And we would go to bed with my mom holding up her fingers and being like, oh, it's going to be six months. Wow, we've gone through a whole month. Oh, now it's going to be five months, four months. And then when we would get to one, it would become six months again. 
so this happened for three years and i remember like being so mad because uh, i love math i have synesthesia numbers are my friend like you you can't fudge the numbers for me so i was like really pissed off and i think in my head i assumed that once the six months was up which ended up being three years all of los angeles and all of tehran were gonna melt together and I was still going to have my family in Iran. And I was going to have this new home that I was going to allow, be allowed to be belligerent in. And it was all going to like, I thought that's how the multiverse worked. I thought my dad was shopping for another part of the hemisphere to bring closer to ours. I didn't realize that that wasn't the case until my dad came. We went to Dubai to meet up with him. Then we came back to Iran. We we're like, okay, now we're moving to America. And I was holding my aunt Nair's hand because she's my favorite person on earth. And I'm just holding her hand throughout the airport. And we got to the airport and then my dad's family was like, okay, now you have to let go of your aunt from your mom's family and now hug all of us goodbye too. And I like looked up, I'm like, I'm not going to say bye to her. Like she's coming. Like she, like, I love her. What are you talking about? And then they were like, no, 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 you're going to be taken away from her. And then there was this moment where I was being ripped out of her arms and I was like clawing and holding on to her and screaming and crying. And they were like, no, you can only go with your parents. And I straight up at the airport went, okay, I choose my aunt Nair as my mom and my grandfather as my dad. Like, I'll go with these two. And they were like, that works. <laughs> you gotta go with your real parents. And I was like, who are you to talk? So anyways. There was this moment where I got ripped out of her arms and I was just crying. And then my body was being handed from family member to family member because they also wanted to say bye. And I was just like slapping people. Like I was trying to like smack yeah. my way my aunt Naya. And then I remember sitting in the airplane in a seat that felt like it was way too big for me. It felt like I was sitting in a swimming pool and my parents on either side. And I was just like crying with my arms up going, this injustice will not stand. Uh. I was having a day. We got here, we met my uncle Kedding, who's my dad's best friend, and I still call him my uncle Kedding. He picked us up from the airport and took us to his place in um, Orange County or Irvine at the time. And Naya had given me like a clown uh, hair Thing that she had made it was like a cute little clown I had glasses and it was like a little because I was afraid of clowns so whatever I was afraid of she would make me something cute and because she had made it then I would automatically love it mm. so I had this little hairpin that I still had and I couldn't bring any of my toys I couldn't bring any of my stuff because we only had two suitcases so I had what little I had from my aunt and we got to my uncle's house here and I just like wanted to cry like it felt like when you like uproot a plant and you just violently cut everything off and they're just sucking up air and just feeling dismembered. And I was just sitting there and I loved drawing and I wouldn't talk. And my uncle was trying to talk to me and I was pissed off at my parents for not explaining. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think they mm -hmm. knew I wouldn't do well with it. So they just kind of like skimmed over all those important parts. And I felt like, betrayed to hell and I think that was a moment where I was like I'm gonna make these people's lives hell and it was just like I was like an obnoxious little child and my uncle didn't know what to do to get him my good graces uh -huh. and he had some computer paper and he was just like looking for something else and as soon as I heard paper I like looked over like all excited and he was like do you want paper and I was like like and I just snatched the paper and I got some pencils and I started drawing and at one of our red carpet screenings he actually framed my first drawing that I did in LA and brought it over which means a lot because my mom always throws out all of my shit so like it's one of anyways so I drew that then we uh came here to West LA this is literally the first apartment building we moved into I went to elementary school I got there they I was supposed to like finish third grade and go to the fourth grade at school like I should have been in fourth but they said because I was from Iran a Middle Eastern country it must have been backwards and retarded so they put me held me back a grade put me in the third grade and then I got to class uh, and my teacher came up he sat me in the front row and he handed me a bunch of papers 
And I was just looking at the paper and going, what the hell? And I, lo and I looked at the math and it was like two plus two. And in third grade, we were like doing algebra. Well, and third grade, I thought third grade, at least, I don't know, I did third grade in New York State. I recall that was multiplication. Yeah, or like even two times two or whatever. In Iran, we were like doing algebra, like in wow. third grade. Math wow. was like, I coasted through my education, through my MA, PhD program with my third grade math from Iran. So when they held me back a grade, set me up and gave me a piece of paper with like two times two, I was like, oh, they think I'm a vegetable. Like, rude. And I'm sitting there looking at this and I'm like, okay, well, there's more paper. Maybe it gets harder. And then it was the same thing over and over again. And I was just like sitting there steaming. And then people behind me got mad and were like tapping me. And I looked behind me and I realized, oh, everybody else had handed all the papers out. So I handed all the papers back. They went back and then the one extra I should have kept like came back to me. And I was looking at it and I just kind of like took out my pencil and I filled it up, but I was just looking at it like all upset. And then the teacher came by, hovered over me and said, you don't have to do that. And he was like spitting while telling me like, oh, this math was too above me and it was my first day and I didn't have to do it. And I just kind of like used the paper as like a shield from like his moisture talk and speech. <laughs> and he like looked at this piece of paper of like two times two, three times three, and was like, and looked at me like I was a monkey doing math. Like he like looked at me like I was like, like how does this girl know what two plus two and like three times three is? And I just like looked at him with contempt. Like I'm not stupid. Like you can hold me back a great, but I'm not dumb. And he went back. And then for the next six months, he kept bringing me paperwork. I kept filling him out and shoving it in front of him and being like, bring me something like worth my time. And in six months, I finished third grade, skipped fourth grade, and apparently fifth grade. And after six months, he was like, tell your parents to come to this like graduation. And I was like, what's the graduation? They're like, we're going to sing. And I'm like, what are we singing? They're like, you don't have to sing. You can just mouth out the words. And I just looked at the setup. I'm like, my parents are going to be disappointed of me. Like, I'm not going to invite my parents to come watch me be your monkey. Like, no. So I didn't even tell my parents I was graduating. And on graduation day, um, like, at, we usually got out at three, like, around noon. This was, the, like, the elementary school graduation? or Yeah, like, the fifth grade graduation. And my teacher came out, and he brought out my entire binder with everything I filled out and was like, congratulations, you don't go to this school anymore. Now you get to go to junior high. Now, in Iran, when you've been really bad and they kick you out of school, and usually if they kick you out of school, no other school will take you. So there's this, like, threat of, like, we will hand you your folder. We will put your folder under your arm and send you home. So... <laughs> he handed me my folder, put, literally put it under my arm and said, okay, now you can go home and you don't have to come back here. And I was just kind of like, you thought you were getting kicked out of school. I, did. <laughs> <laughs> I was so good. You were so racist. I put up with so much shit. I'm getting kicked out. Fuck you. Because you, you didn't understand it meant you were graduating because you had done so well. But it didn't feel like so well because it was yeah. so easy and like yeah. pedestrian and like I just felt like it, it felt like an insult on top of like a whole bunch of insults. Mm -hmm. So I like, I, li I can literally see my elementary school from my home, but I walked home and I knocked on the door and we had just moved here six months ago. And before we moved here, there were like the riots, the 94 riots and everything. So that's all we saw on TV from Iran. So we mm. thought everyone was just getting murdered. I, I wasn't, you're talking Rod, Rodney King, right? Yeah. I like think that was 92, here. I think. Was it? Okay, so we got here at 94. But you had seen Iran it before, yeah. The, the entire time my dad was here was just showing those videos. Yeah. Over and over. So my mother was afraid of like opening the door and taking down the trash. So here I am like knocking on the door. She's not opening. So I'm just like knocking on the door like more violently. She's looking through the eye hole, but I'm so short at the time, you can't see me. You just hear angrily knocking. So she opened the door with the chain. I'm like, let me in, woman. <laughs> and I come in with like flaring my little folder in her face going, those ingrates, they've kicked me out of school. This injustice will not stand. She's like, wait, 
him too brought me to a city said everybody was like me they think i'm retarded they don't know what math is so i was just going off on my mom till my dad came home then i was going off on my dad so the next day it was like a friday but school had ended my dad walked me to school and they were like yeah congratulations we missed you at the graduation he looked at me and i was like you didn't miss anything it was silly and he was like they gave they kicked my daughter out of school they're like no we didn't kick her out of school she graduated fifth grade and he was like just six months ago you told me she had to be in the third grade i rented a place across from this school so she can come here for three years and get like her bearings now you're telling me she has to go somewhere else we have to move and i was like i'm not moving and he was like calm down adults are talking so anyways now i'm in this office and they're explaining to my dad that i actually did a great job and i graduated and now I'm starting to understand what's happening and I'm less enraged by it. But my dad is like, my baby girl gets what she wants and she wants to be here for the next three years. <laughs> so the two of us are arguing with the school and demanding that they hold me back and put me back in the third grade and not skip me past fourth and fifth. Oh my God. So that was hilarious then after a whole while we went to sixth grade i was in sixth grade for six months in esl then they kicked me out of esl for faking not knowing english not a single person ever taught me the alphabet or verbs or anything i taught myself everything and in those six months i got kicked out of esl for faking having english be my second language and i was like bitch english is my like ninth language and i'm not thinking <laughs> anything i don't lie they kicked me out and i went to a math class and in this math class a giant guy who also spoke very like moistly i don't know what it was about the teacher like like scream and spit and he would just like yell out math questions and whoever yelled back he would throw candy at them and these are like rock candy that wasn't soft. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, the war had nothing on the educational system in this mess. So I was good at math, but I didn't understand what he was screaming. And my synesthesia, like I like see vibes and like sounds and the louder and more aggressive they are, the more I try to hide mm -hmm. from the sounds. So I kept moving further and further to the back of the class because I didn't want to get hit by candy or his moisture articulations so i sat in the back and i had these friends who were sitting with me they all loved the candy but they didn't know the math problems and one of one time when the guy was screaming the person next to me was writing down what he was saying so i started looking at what he was saying and then taking my pencil and writing out the answer on my page mm. so then like he would scream out the answer and then i would duck to get out <laughs> of the candy thing and then the teacher noticed that every time anybody around me screamed the right answer, I would do one of these and I was writing. So then, thank goodness, he started, instead of just screaming, yeah, he started yeah. writing numbers on the board so I could like see them pass the screaming and write down the answer even quicker. And then duck even quicker when people around me started screaming it. Yeah, and which is just, at this point in time, we would say it's just good teaching, right? Multi- <laughs> um yeah. sensory learning that you have to write it not just say it to hit all the learners <laughs> it was awesome wow that was great and then i found the science class and i tried looking for math and science because they were my favorites couldn't really find one that i could respect everything was pre my third grade education in iran and, and it was all this la unified public schools yeah yeah completely public school and i remember getting straight a's throughout my education up until eighth grade and then that's when i just gave up i was like i give up like i'm getting straight a's while not understanding what they're screaming at me and it doesn't seem to matter and then i started having other kids pick on me because i was getting straight a's while they were paying attention and like failing so then it became this thing of like getting straight A's isn't cool and you can get your ass beat for it. So then I just stopped. Okay, so uni, my high school on the west side, 
started uh, bringing in kids from inner cities uh, so they can like have a better education. Mm -hmm. But then instead of like having the school give them an opportunity, they just turned the high school into a prison where they would bring in kids from different gangs in different places in the inner city and then treat everyone like we were in prison. Wow. So the year before I came to uni, they like kicked out 50 of my closest friends because the cops would send in narcs and be like, hey, can you help me with this? And like, they would like have a pipe or something. And if a kid touched it, they would get kicked out of school. Like they would like come and like try to trick kids into like mm -hmm. being like, oh, I want to be your friend. Will you do this one thing for me? Like hold my backpack. And then they'd be like, oh, well in that backpack we had weed. So they get kicked out of school. So then I came to a school where LAPD was chasing people around. And it was unsafe. Like the bell would ring. You would have four to five minutes to get to your next class. But uni is like four city blocks long. And if you're, if your class is by the Native American Springs down here, burial ground, one period, and your other class is above it in the other building, it takes you nine minutes to run the entire four city blocks to get to it. But at that point, while you're running, when the second bell rings, then you have LAPD chasing you too. Mm -hmm. And you will get sent to juvie for being late to class. So people were just like dropping out while getting beatings by LAPD, like in this school that looked like prison. Wow. So then I just let go of math and science, looked for the art classes, and then I would just hunker it down in art classes. You have your childhood version of, of how you arrived. Are there things your family's told you about their version of the story or their decision to come here versus other places? Every single person in my family has migrated. My mom's uh, grandmother and her great aunt, they used to all like live in Russia. Mm -hmm. And during some sort of like, um, babe, what, Jesse? Oh, he's like completely, he knows it better than I do. But during some history in Russia, there was like all sorts of like, babe, when my grandparents, uh, when my mom's side moved from Russia, when was that? And what war were they running? How was the exodus during the Bolshevik? The exodus during the Bolshevik revolution. Yeah. It's where well, my mom's family. Do you know what time period that was? When was was it which generation? Your grandparents? Oh, or your... it was my grandma's mother and okay. my grandmother's uh, my grandmother's mom and my grandmother's uh, brother-in-law and sister. So your great grandparents, yeah. Apparently, the story is they had this. They out of all of their things, their bed had four little gold uh, ball posts at the end of their bed. Mm -hmm. So they like took everything that was gold, took everything that they could melt down and just ran. Yeah, I just looked it up too. Did he just Google it himself? <laughs> That's what I did. 1917 to 1923. And when my mom's uh, so, family came over from like Russia to Azerbaijan to the northern part of Iran. Okay. And my, on my mother's side... My great-grandfather came with his parents, also from Russia, but it was earlier than that. It, because, so, because 1917 is also beginning of World War I. Yeah. They, they came, I think, in the late 1800s to New York, to like oh. Lower East Side and the Bronx. That's so sweet. They got further than my family did. They just like moved a little bit out of the fire. Yeah. They came from Russia. My dad's family, I don't know where they came from, but my uh, great-grandfather or my grandfather from my dad's side, their last name was Bailon. And when they got to Bailon, they, like, didn't, nobody could pronounce their name in Iran, so they, like, bought a bunch of land, and now there's, like, a city in Iran named Bailon mm. where of them live, so they were just kind of, like, belligerently, like, oh, you don't know my name, I will start a town and name it after myself type of thing. Wow. And then my uh grandmother and grandfather my grandfather was orphaned well his, he lost his mom when he was 16 and mm. that's around world war ii and they had told him to stay inside and not go out because people would kidnap you and send you to war but he says like it was like around sunset and he just went out to like peek his head out to like look at what outside feels and looks like 
and he was snatched by what he calls the Democrats. Um, there were like a lot of people trying to like get people for their side of the war and they were just handpicking people in Iran and he was picked up by the Democrats for the World War II thing. Hmm. And he got there and they tried to like give him a rifle and things and he was like, no, love, peace, I'm an artist, I'm not going to hurt anybody. Like, And then he had an education so they actually put him in charge of like some office work and then from there he became a teacher and then my grandfather was head of the agricultural department in mm. Iran during the Shah's time. And then when the revolution happened, they were like killing people and jailing people, but they couldn't find anything to do with my grandfather to give him shit for. So then they were like, you can stay and like, we'll put this like cleric ahead of you. And as long as you do everything he says, then you'll be fine. And mm. my grandfather was like, this is sexist, it's racist, it's every is, and I will not, no thank you. So then he retired. Um, my grandmother is a badass. Probably can't even out all the ways in which she's a badass for because she might actually get in trouble. She's still being a badass. And that aunt that you wouldn't let go of, did she stay in Iran? Yeah, she's still there. Um, when we came here... We applied for them to be able to come visit, mm -hmm. but that's like, what, 20, 30 years ago? And their time won't come until 2024 is when my aunt will be able to come visit me. Mm. And with, if this administration wins again, that will probably never happen. So um, you're reminding me now, I had completely forgotten about this, but, but are you willing to tell the story about the travel ban and your uncle? Sure. Um, my cousin, uh, Maysam, he actually, his name is Umon now, he works in the medical industry and he went to um, India first from Iran when he was like super young. And then from there he came to LA about 18 years ago. And honestly, he's so busy in like med school, we like barely ever see him. And his mom and dad kept saying, come back to Iran, visit us. like. Your brother misses you, your sister misses you, your parents miss you, like, come back to Iran, come let us see you. And he was basically like, I'm in medical school, like, I've got shit to do, like, I can't just drop everything and go on a vacation. And I know once I come, you're going to want me to stay several months. I can't, like, I'm in med school, like, leave me alone. So then my aunt and my uncle applied for their green cards so they could come visit him at some point. Mm -hmm. They waited in line, they did all the right things, they got all the right lawyers, and it took 12 years for them to get their green card to get to come visit their son. And at that time, my aunt had already come here to see his son, uh, because uh, they were like, okay, here are your green cards, and my aunt was like, I want to go see my son as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And my uncle was like, well, I have some shit to do, it's going to take me a minute. She was like, I don't care, I haven't seen my eldest son in 12 years, I'm going to go see him, you do you. So she came and then he was sent to like um, one of the mid states for his residency. So he mm -hmm. took his mom with him. So he, they were there. And my uncle came to visit them and he was, we were supposed to pick him up at LAX. And then after a week, he was supposed to go visit his son. And then my aunt and uncle were supposed to go back to Iran and my cousin was supposed to stay here. To put it all in context, this was a, it, within like weeks of, of yeah, Trump being inaugurated, I, right? Uh, Trump got inaugurated and he signed his first hateful uh, ban on January 17, 2017. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my uncle landed at LAX on January 27, 2017. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is messed up because they could have just told him not to show up. And he, and he showed up with his green card. Like he, was, like, he was like, I want to visit my son, but it wasn't like, oh, I want to get a tourist visa or whatever. They were like, what is yeah. the most correct way we can do this? And they were like, get a green card. It's going to take like a dozen years. And they're like, fine, we just want to see our son. So he showed up with a green card. And everyone else in our family is a U.S. citizen, including his son. Mm -hmm. So when he arrived at LAX and then got disappeared, like we showed up at seven and we just kept waiting. Mm. We just kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And families would come get their loved ones and leave. The only other families who were worried were Hispanic families who would come to pick up their loved ones and their loved ones wouldn't come out of TSA mm. either. 
and they would be like crying and sad but like almost normalized and they'd be like oh my god it's like 9 45 we've been here since like 8 45 we'd be like we've been here since like 6 45 and then they would wait a little bit linger and then they would leave they wouldn't even talk to the authorities or anything even though they were all legal immigrants waiting for their other legal immigrants mm -hmm. to come through they would wait for a couple of hours and leave and my family and I was just standing there like well I mean he landed at 7 p.m it's 11 he was on the plane like he was on the plane he had mm -hmm. to be here like you know unless yeah. you know so we were just waiting for him and we kept talking to the authorities and they said there was a new ban uh immigration might take until 11 p.m don't worry about it so we waited from 6 45 until basically 2 a.m and then we went back and we were like seriously they told us to wait until 11 it's two where is he and then they were like oh well immigration is closed he's not here we're like what do you mean he's not here like he got on a plane we talked to him he got to dubai we talked to him he got on another plane we talked to him he turned off his phone he was on that plane. Like there has to be a body. Um, we kept asking people and then the security guard was getting really abusive towards my mom and I kind of going, shut the fuck up and get the hell out of here, get out of my airport. Like, and there was some Gustavo shit and we just got scared and we walked away and we just walked crying to my dad to tell him what had happened. Mm -hmm. And then this like younger, taller drink of like epic, awesome sauce water african-american guy walked up to us and he was so tall but so young and we thought the security had sent him to kick us out of lax there was nobody else left there and he came up and he smiled at us mm. and he was the first person that smiled at us all day so then we all kind of like looked at him we we're like oh my god no he's not trying to beat our face again like he's smiling and then he was like can i help you guys and we were like oh my god my uncle landed blah 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 my dad handed him like his business card and we were like, we can't get down there, but we know he has to be down there. They said he would be in immigration. And he was like, I'll go check. So then we went from looking for my uncle to like hunched over this thing, looking for this guy to come back. Mm -hmm. And he came back and we we're all like excited. Like, oh my God, somebody's helping us there. He's going to tell us something. And he got up and he was like, sorry, dude, he's not there. He's not in immigration. And we just like, we're like, oh my God, he's dead. Like, like what the fuck and we were just like so distraught and he was like sorry like we couldn't help you guys there was only about like 15 guys down there and they were all hispanic and i was like yo hablo espanol hello brown totally yeah. passed for hispanic so yeah. and my uncle like please check again he was like i'm sorry and stuff and we were like well thank you for helping and i reached into the flower bouquet i had for my uncle and i picked out like this like white rose and I handed it over to him and he was like, no, 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 I didn't do anything. I'm like, dude, you talk to us like we were human beings. You've mm. done more than you'll ever know. Our family will never be able to like, thank you for like treating us with dignity. Like yeah. human beings, like thank you so much. And he went back downstairs and the three of us just stood there like, I mean, we're screwed. He's probably dead, but we're just going to stand here, even if we stand here for a lifetime, because if there is a chance of him being alive and getting out, we're not going to leave him. Like, he's never been to LAX. Mm -hmm. We're going to leave him in the middle of LAX and go home. So we just stood there. We stood there for, like, probably another hour or two, and then my dad got a call from an unblocked number on his phone, mm -hmm. and we got, like, super excited and my dad picked up and the other voice on the other end said sorry mr violon we have bad news for you and in farsi with all the tarot and all the nice and kind whatever you never really tell anybody we have bad news for you unless mm. the person's dead and decimated and there's no body mm. so when the first words of it like even before hello we're like we've yeah. got bad news for you we all just kind of like crumpled we we're like we knew it he's dead he's gone mm. like he's dead like we've got bad news for you like that's all it could mean so then we started like begging the guy at the other end of the phone which was probably a tsa officer downstairs who was probably not even allowed to talk to us because he was calling us from his open line on his own personal number like it wasn't from lax like because mm. when you get those numbers they're always blocked you don't have like a callback 
So we started like begging this guy. We were like, can we please just see the body? Can we just see the body, please? Can we just see the body? And then he said, no, you can't mm -hmm. see or speak to him. And as soon as he said, no, you can't see or speak to him, the three of us started and like- And knew he was alive. Yeah, yeah, we started like thanking him. We're like, oh my God, we love you. Thank you so much. You rock. It's okay. Let your adorable child be. See Do you want to come say hi to my friend? Hi. I Do you say I hi to Marjan? Okay. I think he wants to be involved with that being involved. He's adorable. Oh, I see somebody hitching a chair over. Yeah. Oh, that's the cutest thing ever. Do you want some paper so you can draw? Yeah. Move this out of your way. Oh my god, he's like a full on person now. Mm-hmm. Here. So cute. What? What is this saying? Oh, that's just scrap paper. You can draw on the other side. It's like a spreadsheet. That <laughs> draw He's on like, the front paper side. is already contaminated. I yeah. demand a blank copy from the net. Hmm? Is this cool? Yeah, that's a tape measure. So I'm going to keep ta having my conversation, okay? And you can draw. Oh my God, later I have so many questions for you. Okay. <laughs> So what is it like it, having like a child during pandemic times? It's crazy. It's amazing. I think he's having the best summer. <laughs> but but it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not meant to be a stay-at-home mom. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> oh my god, you made a whole person. So proud of you. No, those are centimeters. <laughs> centimeters, yep. Yeah. Yeah, the whole world operates by them. We're special kids. <laughs> yep. Milo, did you wash your hands? Oh. Uh -huh. Oh, no. Is he wearing a cute little mask at home, too? Oh, well, they just came from outside, I think. Aww. So that's why Jeremy called him to go wash his hands. So. Ooh, you touched a measuring tape. You got the COVID now. I know, right? Like he just like touched everything without washing his hands. <laughs> Probably fine. Being home mama presents from the outdoors. <laughs> That's adorable. So you're in the end, your uncle was alive. How long did it take for you to be able to get him out of LAX? Oh, we didn't get him out of LAX. Um that night ended with us thanking that very confused agent of going, why are these people thanking me? Mm -hmm. I've just disappeared their uncle. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't like him anyways. Like, they're so grateful right now. <laughs> um, we got home. On the drive home, my parents were talking about how it's okay. They've done internment camps for Japanese people before. How they understand. And how once the camps come around and we all get collected, everything will be fine because we don't owe anybody any money and everything's paid off. And I was like, are you people serious? We're going to be okay because everything's paid off. Like they were like, it's okay if we end up in a concentration camp. Yeah, they're like packing their bags on the way home. So we get home, I call Jesse and he comes over and my mom has set the table with all of my uncle's like favorite food. So we were only supposed to be gone like 20 minutes. So we come back like eight, nine hours later, sit around, eat all the cold food while he was starving. When I talked to that agent, I was like, okay, so he's alive. Can we bring him some food? And he said, no. And I was like, what's going to happen to him? I was like, probably we don't know. And I was like, oh, should we get him a lawyer? And at the minute I said the words lawyer, he was like, no, 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 he's fine. He'll probably be safely deported. He has food, water, blanket, everything. He didn't have anything. He got one miniature-sized bottle. He was going up to the window and rubbing his belly, going, hungry, hungry, hungry. Bitch, I've eaten it for hours, hungry. So anyway, the next day, I like basically went on Facebook and like told all my friends what was happening, cried myself to sleep. Woke up to like my phone being maxed out with every voicemail like full. And I called my dad back and he was like, I hope you're happy. All your man fighter friends are at LAX. 
your mom's afraid. I hope you're happy. Why did you tell anybody? My parents were pissed off that I told people. And we were doing an art show like that weekend with the LA Art Girls Association of Hysteria Curators and all these people. And instead of being at the art show, everyone has showed up at LAX. And my parents were terrified. They were like, you told people? Now they're obviously going to kill them. They're going to kill all of us. Like, why did you talk? And I'm like, shut up. You were packing your bags for like the camps. Like, and my dad's like, yeah, all your man fighter friends from your art shows are here. Your we man fighter them. friends. That's what she call. That's what he calls feminists. Like, we're not just feminists, we're man fighters. So he was like, and which is funny, because my dad's a total feminist. But like, he doesn't like, like admitting to it. And so everyone was at LAX being loud and like in their face. And they recognized my parents from the art show. So they were all like, talking to them my mm -hmm. mom was apparently hiding behind the post like at lax reuters and news people were talking to them and so they called they were afraid they came back home but we were mm -hmm. doing it in shifts because last night when i was sleeping they were at lax in case he came out so then mm -hmm. they called they were like we're afraid your friends are here you better get here mm -hmm. so then by the time jesse and i got to lax they had left and by the time we got there, there was like a candlelight vigil. Then we went from like feeling like the loneliest people on earth to having like all these people there. And you would think that once all the people are there, everything's okay. No, things got much worse. Mm -hmm. Things were better outside, but inside things were much worse. We started talking to lawyers and we got ACLU involved. And then ACLU drafted a letter and got a, a signed court order saying they had to let him go because he had a green card like he was totally legal like it wasn't a muslim ban like as a, like mm -hmm. he was allowed to be here and by the time they got them the paperwork saying that they couldn't kick him out they were like sorry we already started walking him to the airport we started walking him to the plane they're like yeah but yeah. he's not in the plane we have a court order they're like sorry he's already walking to it so they put him on a plane and they had taken his Persian passport, put a red cross in it, put a void sticker in the middle of it, and then deported him to the um, uh, Emirates because he was on an Emirates flight. Mm. So they deported him to Dubai. And as he was walking that way, ACLU was like, no, we have a court order, which actually ended up being better because even though they couldn't help my uncle, it kept them from deporting anybody else at LAX that had mm -hmm. legitimate paperwork mm -hmm. to, to be there. And when we told my uncle, he cried. He was so happy. He was like, I don't care that I got deported. I'm so happy that their work kept from other people. Yeah. But anyways, he got to Dubai the next day. Again, there's protests at LAX. Everybody keeps telling my family and I how grateful we should be that people are coming out and paying attention. Meanwhile, we were getting phone calls from my cousin in Iran going, I just talked to my dad. He was crying. He was beaten up by the Emirates security at their airport. And I go, I don't believe it. I go to Dubai all the time. Nobody's ever beat me up before. I don't know what you're talking about. And then my cousin said, they won't give him any of his own paperwork. They, there's somebody else that hands his passport, but apparently they've written in his passport that he's a criminal. So he's getting beaten up like as oh, a terrorist. So I called the Dubai airport going, hi, my uncle is in your custody. I just heard he was beaten up. And as soon as I said that, the voice on the other side said, violent. And I was like, holy shit. I said beaten up and she told me my uncle's name. So that was the moment when I knew it wasn't a lie and he had wow. gotten handed to him. And I was like, okay, well, from the ACLU, we have other documents saying, please don't send him to Iran. Because at that point, my dad and I were all over media going, this is America. This isn't Iran. Now they're deporting my uncle from Dubai to Iran. We're like, oh my God, the Iranian government's going to pick him up at the airport, take him to their propaganda television channels and have him sit there talking shit about America or they'll try to kill him. And now our family's in danger. Like, please yeah, don't wow. do that. So I'm crying at Peter, Peter Bibbring on the ACLU and he's going, do we need more press? I'm like, no, we're afraid of everything we've set on the press. It might get him and our family killed there. Meanwhile, I have friends texting me and going, oh my God, you're so lucky. Your family should be so grateful to everybody coming out to LAX. I'm like, we're afraid we're all gonna get killed, yo. But they 
Oh, oh be sure to send somebody a gift basket after all of this is over. What the hell are you talking about? So he gets deported to Iran. We're all shaking. My baby cousin goes to Iran's airport, gets his dad out, and then my uncle goes home, gets a bunch of paperwork, and he flies out of Iran immediately before anybody can get him. And this time he goes to Armenia. And then Peter Bibring from ACLU told us about Gabriel, who was working in Armenia. And he met up with my uncle. And all night, I would stay up and they would talk and I would translate. Mm -hmm. And Gabriel would be like, what happened to you like in America? And my uncle would be like, I love America. Everything is perfect. And I would translate that. And Gabriel would be like, Merjan, please be honest and translate what he says. You don't need to put a rosy filter on it. What they did to him was horrendous. And I'm like, uncle, they don't believe me when I'm translating exactly what you're saying. Please don't be afraid. Like, you can tell Gabriel anything. This isn't a propaganda thing. Like, your life isn't in danger for telling the truth. And then he stopped. And he was like, I appreciate everything you guys are doing, but I don't think you guys understand what the norm in Iran is. So compared to where that is, I don't think what is happening there, like, I'm not going to talk shit. Like, I've been grateful for worse. And I just translated that and Gabriel and I stopped and we were like, okay, well, I mean, he's got a different perspective. We're here going, this can't happen in America. This is not the rule of law. And my uncle is like, no, people in power always do shit like this. This is norm. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to talk shit and get murdered over this. Yeah, wow. Be cool. So I think about a week passed until we could get paperwork and permission for him to come back. And at that point, when he landed in LAX, ACLU had worked their ass off for a week. Uh, I believe Mayor Garcetti found out what they had done and that the press was coming. So he didn't really tell ACLU that he was coming. He didn't really tell security that they were coming, but then the mayor came and that brought more press. And even as the mayor was there, my uncle was getting out of LAX, the agents didn't wanna accept his green card packet or stamp his passport. They didn't stamp his passport so they could say that he was in the country illegally so they could pick him up and disappear him again. And then Peter from the ACLU came while um, the mayor was holding up my dad and my uncle's hands up in the air going victory. Peter came by and was like, no, not victory. They're yeah. standing so they can pick him up right outside of LAX for being here illegally for not having a stamp in his passport. And the mayor's people aren't helping us. We need to use this to make sure he gets one passport. Like, in. So then he took my uncle's passport, took it back, got this thing, tried to give them the green card packet. They refused. We got out. LAPD was really pissed off because there were all these people there. The mayor was there and no one had told them and okayed it by them. So there was this whole thing. So it was really funny. Like our family was going through hell and we were getting death threats online by like the millions and thousands daily. And at the same time, people we knew were calling and telling us how grateful we should be. And at that same moment, we were going, okay, well, the trolls online can't find us. It's fine. And then around the same time, we started getting like three or four you're, you are Americans, we love you, you're welcome in this country. And we got these letters to my parents' home. And I remember being there, my parents being like, there's letters, we haven't touched them, but you wanna open them. So I opened them and they're all these loving kind things. And I'm standing there, both of my parents are huddled next to me, the three of us are standing there like, like crying of tears of joy, reading these like letters and cards and going, this is so wonderful. And then there was this moment where we all started sweating we all got really really scared and we were like oh my god if to send that, us like how did they even find your address yeah it was like if well-meaning people can send us mail the death threats of we're gonna come curb your face and send your corpse to where you're from and go back to blah 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 and i'm like i live next to my old elementary school and high school this is the only home i've ever known i don't know where you want me to go back to everyone i know is a u.s citizen like get the hell out of here like and my parents were like, you're not allowed to talk back to them online. So I wasn't. But we were looking at this thing going, well, they can't get to us. Yeah. And then when the nice people get to you, then you have this moment of like, oh, my God, all those people threatening to show up and kill us can also find our address. 
Mm. Like we could, and then it became this thing of like, let's hunker down, let's not go outside. And then media is like, I remember we had Drew Spiegel come and the next day meet up with my dad, demanding that my dad bring him my uncle and bring them both to a mosque where they would like to interview us. And my dad was like, you know what, talk to my daughter. I don't know what you mean. So then he called and he was like, we want you to bring your aunt, your uncle and your dad to a mosque because we're doing a story on the Muslim ban and we want to like, mm-hmm. you know, feel free to dress as Muslimy as you like. We would like to do a German <laughs> piece about the Muslim thing. And I was like, okay, well, we live not close to where you want us to go. That's not where we usually go. We're not props. If you want, we can meet up at a Starbucks. <laughs> and then the guy said, okay, well, if you don't want to go to a mosque, what other Muslimy places can we go to? And I was like, okay, well, if you don't like Starbucks, we can go to Coffee Bean in Brentwood, a block <laughs> away from where we live. What are you talking about? So then they showed up and we did a piece. And then when I saw the Douche Beagle episode, it was like angry Muslims in full hijab in this mosque, in that mosque. And then there's me wearing my little pink dress and my uncle at a Coffee Bean for like, a little thing and then back to angry Muslims in this mosque and how this whole Muslim ban thing is creating more ISIS and I was like Jesus Christ (laughs) (laughs) and then I had art people saying things like you should capitalize on this and I was like screw all of this I quit life like I like capitalize on this like they want you make like on this moment like make art about it or publicize your artwork because of it? I make art with everything that happens in my life, but I make it because I make it. I started getting calls from people going, if you make us propaganda, we'll give you money. And I was like, I don't do, I don't give, I don't pay money to be in art shows. I do me and then I do whatever. And then I was getting calls of like, we want to come do a studio visit with you. And I would bring them to my downtown art studio. And then they'd be like, mm, your art is just not Muslim enough. Like your art, like they wanted me to wear a burqa and mm. like start making Shireen the Shah-esque work. And then they would bring up other artists and be like, have you seen that artist that makes sepia tone art of like Persian looking women wearing full hijab, holding up like an old boombox from the 1980s? Like we want that from you. Can you give us that? And I was like, so you want Persian blackface? to fit into what you want. And then they were like, yes, but don't call it that. And I was like, no, welcome to my art studio. This is what I do. (laughs) I'm not gonna start wearing a burqa and writing Arabic on my skin for you. So then I just took a step back and I stopped going outside and I stopped doing art shows because everywhere I went, it became more about that Mm. than me. And I was like, can you become a cartoon figure, please? We want to like, we want a girl in a burqa being like, yeah, a Muslim band. I'm like, that's not me. Mm. That's not my family. So what do you think it means to be American? If you're white or Euro-American, you're American. If you have melanin in your school, in your skin, you should learn to shut the hell up and get the hell out of here. Mm. You live here to serve the Euro-American. And you will have that privilege and you will be the token colored person in whatever group, just so group can feel better about themselves of having one person of color in their group. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're super nice and you're super servile and you let everyone walk over you and do whatever they want to you and you just put up with it and you never talk back and you never say anything, you're fine. But if you're Mm -hmm. a mouthy colored person, it's not going to go well for you. Mm -hmm which is one vision of America that I am just getting privy to. Honestly, before 2020, I didn't know there were still Nazis in the world. I Mm. thought that shit flared up like a pimple and it popped like during World War II. I thought it was like a thing that happened and ended like that quickly. I didn't realize that all of our institutionalized educational system, policing system, I didn't realize that the police were the ex-slave catchers. I didn't, while I was being chased throughout my high school with the other brown kids, while LAPD did not touch any of the white kids, I didn't realize what was happening. 
until mm. in 2020. And I was like, oh, I feel like before 9-11, America was this artsy, lovely answer to democracy, answer to the world. And I'm saying that as someone that was born in the middle of a war that America funded between Iraq and Iran. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that as someone who grew up in neighborhoods being leveled, I -hmm. still had a rosy image of like, oh my God, we should export our democracy and our culture to the whole world. Like, we're so awesome. We got this. Like, this is amazing. And then on 9-11 is the first time I got called a sand N-word. And I didn't know what it meant until I was in college. And like, I had faced a lot of racism growing up, but I didn't recognize it as racism because I didn't Mm. think racism existed. I thought it existed in a history book about World War II in three like lines of a mini paragraph before we flipped past World War II. I didn't know it was like a thing that was deep rooted in every institution. I mm-hmm. didn't see that shit coming at all. And now I truly believe that the same way I was blind to it, along with a lot of other people of color who experienced it, but then made excuses for it, And we're like, no, it's fine. It's not what I think I'm being overly sensitive. Along with all the other amazing white people and Euro-Americans who aren't Nazis didn't think this was a problem. I Mm. think we're waking up to the America we've been living in while things have been happening and simmering underground, which have been like shaking and separating the brown and black into, you know, the prison industrial complex or showing up at schools and getting them to sign their lives away to go kill other brown people off thing. It always felt like if you were in America, the hand of Homeland Security and all of these things was ruining the lives of others. And they were mm-hmm. doing it because they're, the other's leaders were in the wrong. And we were in the right by standing up and doing something. Even if it killed a lot of civilians on the ground, we were doing our best. But now, ever since 9-11 and the day I got called the sand N-word, I feel like we hyper-created this homeland security that is not securing our homeland from a Putin P-tape-like oligarch here, Mm -hmm. but is beating everyday people in place so our new Putin-run P-tape oligarch can rule all over us. And the same way that Iran is now currently trying to sell itself to China, We're just basically going, no, China and Russia have a receipt on our consumer culture and they own us now and everybody needs to shut the hell up. I feel like a lot of things are coming to view and I think my jaded, my naive, my what now feels like bullshit now that the political backdrop is falling, the America I used to know and love and I'm going to continue knowing and loving, I believe is more real than the America run by fascists in secret clubs for the benefit of the 600 billionaires in this country to the detriment of everyone else. Mm. I feel like the loving America I see with the friends I talk to is much realer than the illusions that are being set. I feel like if we had a better educational system, each and every multiverse behind the eyes of every being could spark up light up and find something more meaningful inside them to be proud of. But being an American means taking the worst thing that you have a problem with and turning it into a billboard and broadcasting your biggest problems with yourself out loud until enough people come together and help you find a solution out of those disorders. Mm -hmm. And I feel like once as Americans, we come through the other end of Black Lives Matter And I feel like once we get to all Black Lives Matter, all countries everywhere that deal with oppression have their minority groups. Mm -hmm. Once we solve it here, once we get rid of our oligarch and show the rest of the world how it's done, we will, as Americans, have sympathy and empathy for something we have never experienced before. This is a glorious flipping moment. Unless November 3rd, a lot of people who are ashamed to say that they're voting for him end up actually voting for him and he wins again. At that point, it's done. It's over. We're all screwed. Like, welcome to Iran 2.0 because it took Iran 40 years after their hijacking to get to where we were last Tuesday. So Mm -hmm. we're moving a lot quicker Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a lot scarier. But I hope to be more optimistic 
it's really funny. My questions for you were actually around creating a human being. I feel like I've always dreamt about creating a human being and thought that the world was too fucked up. And I had a responsibility to fix the world before I brought somebody into it. And it's going the opposite way. It just keeps getting worse. Yeah. And I was talking to Marissa the other day and she said, bringing a child into this world and motherhood is the greatest act of optimism that exists in the world. I think that's a good, yeah, Marisa's got it right. Cause it is that I had that same thought that you described when I was younger. Yeah. Optimism is a, I think that's, to me, I see it as I don't have the energy and the, like my older, my younger self, even just five or six years ago, not even, even like three years ago, Milo's gone with me to the all, several women's marches to the protests against the inauguration. Um, this time around, I felt like I can't be in the streets. I think it has more to do with the pandemic where I was like, I can't, I can't go in the streets right now and protest. We do it in the car. But, we protest, but we don't yeah. get out of the car. <laughs> but I felt like, my role at this moment is to raise him to be anti-racist and to be feminist and to be open to difference and also to try to work within my place of employment to shift things there. So that's kind of where I'm at. I think that was two hours. I think you got like two episodes out of this one. <laughs> I do need to go and think about dinner for my child. It was great to catch up with you. Thank you again.